You don't see that every day where companies kind of circle up to parse over their failure like that. But Alzheimer's is just so many people have a stake in this. So many people want to see a treatment be successful that it seemed like having this kind of event to go over everything really met the moment. That's my colleague, Annalie Armstrong. Later, we'll hear more from her about an Alzheimer's moonshot. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. This episode is brought to you by GoodRx. Today is Friday, June 24th, and we're feeling pretty inspired by some winning campaigns at the Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity. Truly exceptional. But we'll save that for later. In the meantime, stick with us. We've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. Bausch Health has backtracked on plans to put its Solta Medical Division up for an initial public offering. Here's Connor Hale to explain why. Another company's plan to go public has bitten the dust. For years, Bausch Health has been planning to break up into three separate companies. But on June 16th, it halted plans to launch its Solta Medical Division as a separately traded business. The story starts in 2013 when Valiant Pharmaceuticals bought the eye care giant Bausch & Lohm. For a while, Valiant was at the center of kickback schemes that led to prison time and congressional hearings on drug price hikes. But in 2018, Valiant rebranded, taking over the name Bausch Health. Last year, Bausch Medical unveiled plans for its Solta division to go public, taking its portfolio of dermatology devices. Bausch & Lohm would go public as well, all to help chip away at a mountain of debt totaling over $23 billion. Bausch & Lohm had its own underwhelming initial public offering just last month with shares selling for $18 a piece instead of the hoped-for $21 to $24 a piece. Since then, its stock price has fallen by more than 20%. That performance, along with rising fears of a recession, has led Bausch to pull the plug on Solta's trip to the Nasdaq, instead saying it would, quote, revisit alternative paths for the company. Parents, guess what? The wait is over. The FDA has finally authorized COVID-19 vaccines for children who are at least six months old. Now the question is, who will want them? Here to fill us in is Kevin Dunleavy. The FDA has finally authorized a COVID-19 vaccine for kids who are at least six months old. Now the question is, will anyone want them? With demand for vaccines declining, vaccine efficacy more uncertain for young children, and the virus waning, it may be a tough sell, especially for Pfizer. Moderna's vaccine for kids is a two-dose series, but the Pfizer shot requires three doses. Two shots three weeks apart, followed by a third shot eight weeks later. With this extra jab, it's hard to imagine any parent preferring the Pfizer vaccine. Both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for young kids can't match the protection they offer adults. Trials from both companies have shown that efficacy in both children's vaccines is significantly lower than with adult vaccines. The young children's vaccines simply don't work as well. Additionally, new strains of the Omicron variant are emerging. Dr. Paul Offit, the director of vaccine education at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia said, we're really trying to predict the future. There is one big plus these vaccines can offer, their ability to prevent severe cases of COVID and keep people out of the hospital. So while it's a win for Pfizer and Moderna to gain authorizations in these age groups, it's hard to see these authorizations having a major impact on sales. Want to discover what's behind the leading edge in biotech and pharma? 
The team from Fierce Biotech will talk about the next generation on June 29th and 30th at a free virtual event. We'll discuss the flood of interest in Alzheimer's research with experts from Roche, Eli Lilly, and more. We'll also dive into the latest drug discovery enabled by artificial intelligence. We'll talk to payers coming to grips with pricey cell and gene therapies and chat with drug makers looking to go carbon neutral as ESG measures come to the forefront. Join us June 29th and 30th for this special Fierce Biotech event. For more information or to register, go to FierceBiotech.com. Look for next gen. A Roche Genentech Alzheimer's therapy failed an important clinical trial. At the following press conference, scientists parsed over what went wrong and what should happen next. Here's Annalie Armstrong and Karita Anderson. In the last week, we saw another high-profile setback in the world of Alzheimer's drug development. The drug in question this time is one we know pretty well, Roche Genentech's Pranazumab. And this drug has already notched some failures in Alzheimer's trials. But this latest study to fail was different. It was actually looking to prevent Alzheimer's as opposed to treating patients who are already suffering from this memory-robbing disease. And since the pharma pitch for drugs like Ranazumab, despite negative results, has been that we just need to use them as early as possible, This latest study failure is particularly frustrating, isn't it? Now, unfortunately, we're seeing this study where they did go earlier. These patients did not have symptoms yet, uh, and it was a failure, unfortunately. This trial failure almost seems like a return to normalcy after all the craziness that followed the approval of Adjuhelm. You know, it's it's, (laughs) it's hard to recap the whole Adjuhelm situation, but, you know, it was approved. And then now at this point, a year later, it's... It's not, it hasn't been taken off the market, but Biogen is really backing off. They, you know, had to lower the price. They faced a lot of criticism. You know, doctors didn't want to prescribe it because there just wasn't enough evidence. Like the, you know, the kind of bad news goes on and on for for what Biogen has dealt with since that drug got its accelerated approval. Uh, but in the meantime, a lot of companies that had other therapies like, you know, Roche's Genentech unit here, right. they were saying, look, there's a lot of hope. We have all these other therapies. We're going to do better. Uh, so now today, you know, with the failure of this Cronizabab uh, study, it's it's kind of a return to earth and, and back to where we were a year ago, I think. Yeah. So so yeah, back to that late, this latest piece of news. Um, so this Alzheimer's trial was conducted by Roche, but along with a bunch of other researchers, so researchers from Dana Institute's Alzheimer's Prevention Initiative, uh, the Neurosciences Group at the University of uh, Antioquia in Colombia and the National Institute on Aging in the U.S. And one thing that was extremely striking was that they called a press conference to discuss a study that had failed. Yeah, and you know, you don't see that every day where companies kind of circle up to parse over their failure like that. But Alzheimer's is just, so many people have a stake in this. So many people want to see a treatment be successful, that it seemed like having this kind of event to go over everything really met the moment. And and it was it was sobering to see all of these experts together. Genentech's Dr. Raquel Duty summed this up really well. She said, we did not get the results that we wanted. And obviously- Short but sweet, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, re- I really kind of like that. It, you know, and, and I've spoken with Dr. Duty before, and um, I think she's very straightforward about the failures that she's been through before. And this was another one of the moments in her long career where she's, you know, 
not seen what she wanted. Um, but the other thing I would say is this was a really fascinating study. If we kind of remove it from the bigger picture mm. of what's going on mm. in Alzheimer's, it was actually conducted in Colombia on this small uh, familial group of people who have what's called the PISA mutation. So people from this specific region in Colombia have for generations been struck by this particular form of inherited dementia. So this study included over 200 members of this genetically linked group who had no symptoms, but did have this specific gene. And it followed them for five to eight years while they received treatment. Um, so it's just really fascinating. There's, there's lots to look up, up about the PISA people. Apparently this gene is also linked to um, a higher occurrence of ADHD. So definitely if you're, if you're a science nerd, it's, it's something really cool to look up. You're right. This trial was different in so many ways. We haven't gotten into Alzheimer's prevention before this trial. So what happens next, Annalie? Uh, Grocer's Genentech unit is partnered with AC Immune, and it seems like they've both said that they're not uh, ready to abandon the drug. Uh, they say there's still more to analyze, plenty to learn. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I spoke with both um, Genentech's people and AC Immune. Um, they both say they're not going to call it quits on this therapy yet. They still have a lot of analysis to do. I think you mentioned earlier that this is not Cronizumab's first failure. So, yeah, you know, this, you know, I'm not gonna not gonna suggest what they should do here, but it it, it does not have a great record in the clinic. So it'll be interesting to see what they decide to do next. Um, you know, the Banner Institute they were one of the sponsors of this trial. They their expert, Dr. Eric Ryman said that he believes the amyloid theory is still worth exploring, but mm -hmm. maybe cronezumab may not be the right drug for the job. So that was, that was kind of an interesting take. It's like, let's keep going. Let's keep trying this theory, even though we've had so many failures. Um, and, you know, we heard the same from uh, Genentech. It's this years-long battle between those who believe in tau and those who believe in beta amyloid, the Taoists versus the Baptists. During this press conference that was held, Dr. Ryman referred to the quest to find an effective Alzheimer's drug as a moonshot, like he likened it to President Kennedy's efforts to get to the moon, which I thought was a really interesting analogy. Um, and, you know, my, my piece on this got a lot of feedback and a lot of people were saying, why are we still going after this target over and over and over again, even though it keeps failing? Um, there's actually, you know, some non-drug um interventions that are being explored i guess not all of the eggs are in the amyloid basket at this point but right yeah. it certainly gets all the headlines yeah and, and the other thing i would say is that for genentech they have another therapy called gentenumab which has a very critical readout that's due later this year gentenumab study is going after a completely different population it's testing the therapy in about 2000 patients who have the appearance of initial symptoms or early Alzheimer's. Right, again, back to looking at it as a treatment instead of a preventive. So let's see if that works. Something that was echoed several times through that press conference is that they learned a lot. Um, and, you know, we just have to hope that someday some of those learnings turn into to a major breakthrough for Alzheimer's patients and their caregivers. Alzheimer's moonshot is a good way to put it because that's certainly what it feels like right now. Definitely. 2021 was a tough year for Galapagos as key parts of its pipeline disintegrated. Well, Galapagos is back and signing deals to buy two companies this week. Here's James Waldron. 
He's barely been in the role three months, but Galapagos CEO Paul Stoffels has already made his mark. He signed not one, but two deals to buy companies this week. Both moved the Belgian biotech into the red-hot area of CAR-T cell therapies. First, Galapagos is paying around $130 million upfront to buy CellPoint. The deal will give Galapagos access to CellPoint's decentralized point-of-care manufacturing model, with the aim of cutting down the entire CAR-T process to just seven days. Galapagos has also bought a bound bio for $14 million. Now it has its hands on a bound bio's human antibody-based library, as well as its drug discovery and engineering capabilities. Over the next three years, Galapagos plans to take three next-generation CAR-T candidates from a bound bio's library and run them through the clinic using CellPoint technology. Stoffels gave some more information in an interview with Fierce Biotech, explaining that the company will initially look at CAR-T therapies focused on blood cancers, but it has ambitions to move into solid tumours in the future. Stoffels also said Galapagos is on the lookout for more deals to further expand the company's portfolio in a variety of therapy areas. Every once in a while, pharma has a breakthrough. Suddenly, patients who previously had barely any options now have many. That's exactly what's going on right now for the rare disease ATTR amyloidosis. Here's Gabrielle Mason. ATTR is a rare genetic disease caused by the buildup of misfolded proteins in the body. This can cause swelling, shortness of breath, and heart failure. Last week, AstraZeneca partner Ionis reported that the drug Eplonderson met the goals of a phase 3 trial in the most debilitating form of the disease. The partners are now ready to take that data to the FDA. If approved, AstraZeneca and Ionis will join a now-crowded market in ATTR, which includes drugs from Pfizer, Alnylam, and a few others in development. But the outlook is optimistic. If all these therapies come to fruition, patients with all types of the disease should have more, a lot more options. Max Bayer represented the Fierce Newsroom at the Bio-International Convention this year. Overall, he returned optimistic and refreshed by the event. But one thing didn't quite sit well. It happened to be a controversial take on diversity during a panel at the conference. Max sat down with senior editor Annalie Armstrong to discuss that experience. We'll hear more from them after a short break. As a biopharma professional, you know how difficult marketing your drug has become. Well, GoodRx is here to help. GoodRx is a better way to reach the right audience at the right time. Your brand can connect with millions of qualified patients and providers during the most pivotal moments in their healthcare journey. With over 20 million monthly users, GoodRx provides a trusted platform to help your brand build awareness, offer better access, and remove barriers to adherence. Learn more about the benefits of GoodRx at www.goodrx.com solutions. We're here to talk about diversity in biotech, uh, particularly in the C-suite. We had Max at the bio conference, and in the middle of that, there was a little bit of controversy, controversy on one of the panels. So, Max, can you tell us about the controversial take and what happened? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I, exactly as you mentioned, you know, diversity has was sort of a, a major focus of, of this year's bio, um, and and they had a, a number of panels and discussions addressing that. And, and in one of the panels, uh, ironically, about uh, 
building an inclusive workplace, one of the CEOs on the panel said, quote, and I have to say diversity candidates on the board make the boards better. I can tell you that from experience. Um, he goes on to sort of uh, note how adding these diversity candidates brings lived experiences that can be valuable, but then sort of um, says that they may have some shortfalls on business experience, but that's okay because it brings naive impressions and knowledge. Um, and so I think, you know, that's, that's not a stretch to say that that's pretty dismissive, you know, essentially that elevating non-white people to positions of power uh, is good simply because they have different experiences rather than the fact that there are many, many qualified non-white people who are not being given these opportunities because people don't think that they have talent. And so that felt worth highlighting given that biotech by and large is mainly men and mainly white people. And uh, that was the focus. Yeah, I, you know, I feel like he was trying maybe to make a good point. But speaking from a women's perspective, I can confirm that we do not like being referred to as diversity candidates ever. I don't think it's appropriate to, to call diversity efforts that at this point in the discussion. So you just can't make the argument anymore that women don't have the experience to be in the C-suite. Um, and the same goes for candidates of color that that these people need to be elevated to those positions. Right. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, it, it, it's sort of one of those things too, where it seems like you, you, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I think substantive discussions and then also meeting peers, you know, who can provide new insights for companies that don't have enough diversity is really critical. Um, I'll tell you, that was <laughs> the, the head of bio was not pleased by the comment. He uh, called it bullshit. Um, and, and to the point, he, he just didn't really appreciate the fact that someone was delineating between life experience and business experience. Um, I was also briefly emailing another panel member trying to schedule an interview and, uh, uh, you know, she had mentioned that um, there was there was much more said on the panel. But again, you know, I I didn't want to sort of just ignore the comment just because it was just one comment among many. But I I think uh, given that diversity remains a problem um, and has been incrementally increasing, but slowly that it was worth highlighting. This really underscores what women and diverse candidates face in public. but, you know, there's a lot going on behind closed doors as well. Um, so I know that you talked to a lot of, um, you know, executives at the conference. So what were what you hearing about what goes on kind of behind the scenes that we don't see? So I sort of heard like a, a number of different ways, you know, that I think sexism sort of permeates um, in biotech. And, and it, they sort of range from sort of egregious to more subtle and also to compartmentalization. And so I'll kind of go through these. And, and so to start off with Gilly Regev, who's a CEO of a Canadian biotech uh, making nitrous oxide based therapies, uh, she mentioned how earlier in, in her career, she won a pitch competition and she was told by an investor that you know, she won the shoe competition, um, you know, of, of course, sort of demeaning, given the fact that she just, again, had a, a clear business experience, not life experience, business experience. Um, and, uh, you know, another thing which we hear a lot uh, is that when she goes into meetings with her with her male business partner, she'll just get completely ignored uh, for her male partner. Uh, Sabrina Martucci Johnson, uh, she leads a woman's health focused uh, biotech called Dare Bioscience. Um she said that when she meets and, and tailors her pitches, uh, she has to, when she meets with men, she has to sort of tailor her pitches uh, so that they don't get too uncomfortable, you know, talking about, uh, you know, the female anatomy or any medicine that has to do with the vagina or how things are inserted or how things are applied. 
you know, so she has to sort of compare, uh, you know, a, a female sexual arousal med to Viagra, uh, or she has to compare, you know, a, a once monthly contraceptive that the company is developing to condoms, you know, when, when, you know, maybe that isn't a conversation that she would need to have directly with, with, with female investors, uh, it, knowing that that's something that they would just sort of understand. Um, and then I and think this is actually... The other, the other thing I'll just like say yeah. about dietary biosciences, they're going after a market that pharma has really neglected for so long. So the opportunity is huge in these, in these women's indications. So it's just so silly for men to still be uncomfortable with that. When you're seeing investment across the board in so many biotechs, it's like, just get over it. <laughs> yeah. And I think you actually, that is such a great point, Annalie, because Sabrina had said, which is that um, 45% of pregnancies are unintended pregnancies. Uh, if you if you projected that onto any other disease area, um, you know, and you said, hey, look, the, you know, 45% of people are not receiving the treatment that they need um, or 45% of this disease is, is, is untreated. You know, people would be, you know, clamoring to enter that market. Yet when it has to do with women's health, uh, you know, you have to sort of scrap and, and claw to sort of make your case that this is a market worth tapping into, that this is worth investing into. I, I'm just really glad that there's people like Sabrina Johnson out there who are willing to just do it anyways and, and offer women what they need. The last uh, sort of, I think, aspect of this that I mentioned was came from a, an interview with Debbie Yu, who's uh, the chief strategy officer at Lee and Bio. And she was sort of, you know, more tepid, I think, sort of describing what she goes through. And, and maybe that's because she's had a, a, a sort of this long career that spanned uh, different countries, finance, biotech. So she's sort of had to go through all of these different workplace environments. Uh, but ultimately, she said that she feels like she does still experience sexism. And, and sort of more than that, you know, she said to me, quote, I know that the, I know there were challenges along the way, and I'm sure I've adapted a lot of ways of being. Yeah. And, you know, we've recorded this story before. We've written these stories before. And, you know, at Fierce, we're going to continue writing the story until it's no longer a story. I hope that happens sooner rather than later. But, you know, I think that Debbie's comments kind of speak to the fact that some women don't want this to be their story. Um, we, we really love or, or we really appreciate the chance to report these things so that people know it's happening. But at the same time, some women don't want to tell about those stories. They just want their story to be about their experience, what they can bring to this business. And, and both perspectives are really important. So I'm glad you highlighted that in your story. Um, well, and something interesting that I think is important, you know, especially as a man writing this story, you know, trying to, to do it cautiously is, is not only, you know, like not, you don't want to like only elevate women voices in biotech when you're having a diversity story, you know, and that's something that I'm trying to be cognizant of as well is, you know, building a larger source list myself so that these are people who I'm referring to for things not just related to diversity. Um, you know, and I think that might be something that um, might exhaust people too in, in a conference setting as well as being like, oh my God, you know, are you going to, you going to come to the woman to like ask about diversity again? Or do you want to ask about my company? And so I made, I tried to be really clear when I was having some of these conversations, like questions were about the business first, questions about diversity were second. Yes. Women on all panels, not just diversity panels. I yes. love that sentiment. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. So I also loved in your story that you wrote about this issue, um, you have this quote from Bios Paul Hastings that he said, we should not be hiring just old white men anymore. I, I literally laughed out loud when I wrote, <laughs> got to that point in the edit. So you know, it's a flippant quote, but he has a really good point. Let me say, Paul Hastings had a lot of flippant quotes. I sort of actually had to, you know, mention midway that I just was surprised by his candor. Has there been any improvement? There have, you know, and there have. And, and that's, 
that's that's very much worth noting. You know, it, it, the latest issue of, of the of Bio's sort of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion report, um, you know, showed that there have been improvements both in terms of the number of women that are are employees at Biotechs and also the number of women that are executives. The latest figure is at thirty four percent. But but where you get to the top of companies, that's where things remain quite top heavy and quite. Uh, off kilter. Uh, men remain a staggering 79% of CEOs. And in terms of race, uh, 70% of CEOs are white. I, and I would actually say this, and, and this is where I would really challenge bio. The number of responses to this report was abysmal. You know, I don't really know how else to say it. There are thousands of biotechs, less than 100 respondents to the report. That's not a good image. So yes, we as a publication are going to cover it. It's some of the most the best data we have available. Yeah, so I think I think a good way to end this is just by putting out a call to to biotech um, people in the industry, with venture capital firms, private equity firms, everybody who's involved in this this ecosystem. Please make this a non-story for us. We'd love to stop reporting it. We'd love to see women in the C-suite. We'd love to see people of color in the C-suite. Make this a non-story. So the agency that won um, was working with Dell and Intel, the two major tech firms, as well as Rolls-Royce, the luxury car manufacturer, and the Motor Neurone Disease Association, which is um, a patient charity group for MND. And together, they've helped um, give the voices back to MND patients. Last week, Ben Adams attended the Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity, the largest festival in the creative marketing community. And this year, the Grand Prix in the pharma category was oddly a non-pharma company. The winning campaign was called I Will Always Be Me, and it focuses on motor neuron disease, MND, specifically on the disease's cruel way of stealing patients' voices. Almost everybody living with MND will lose their voice. When I first had the diagnosis, everybody said, bank your voice, bank your voice. Voice banking allows people with MND to create a digital copy of their own voice. So even after they lose the ability to speak, they can still sound like themselves. There's a small book. It's about 30 minutes um, to, in length. And what you do is the person that's recently been diagnosed with MND will read through this book. And the book is actually quite clever in the sense that it's both captures everything you need, all of the voice patterns that you have, your tone, um, the amount of words that you need, everything um, for, to be able to use as your future voice once you use, lose yours. But it's also a story about the experiences and living with MND. So it's an incredibly uh, you know, patient-centric uh, design, but also very emotive. Everything is changing. My voice sounds a little different. Sometimes I will even need help with the very same things that I used to help you with. Everything is changing, but I'll always be me, and I'll always love you. I talked with Ben after the festival. Even though he was surprised by the selection, he says the I Will Always Be Me campaign deserved to win. To get the Grand Prix, you have to be incredibly good, and I think everyone was incredibly happy this won. Stephen Hawking's, who recently died, who had motor neurone disease, that robotic kind of electric sound is what most people with MND for decades. 
I know that sound very well because my grandmother lost her voice and she had a little yes. machine that would speak for her. Yeah. But mostly she just learned sign language. For 10 years or so when she couldn't speak anymore, it was always still her voice on the answering machine. Yeah. And then eventually that tape, because it was still tape, that tape broke and it was no and it was her voice was then just gone. Five years ago, especially ten years ago, this this wouldn't have won because this is, you know, a piece of technology which is incredibly patient-centric and, and health-based, but it's not curative. It's not a fancy new drug in an area that we know really well, like cancer or, or autoimmune diseases. This is for MND, which has almost no, you know, <laughs> no drug and, that, and no real treatments at all. Um, it, it, it's, it's a horrible disease that we can do very little about. But this is mm. literally giving them their voices back. I wish it was around when my grandma was still around. Yeah. It's amazing because we thought of her voice mostly when she was still alive. I wish I could hear her voice because she was yeah. there and she was very much vibrant person, a part of our family, and yet she couldn't speak at all for like a decade. The same company that won the Grand Prix in Pharma, VMLYNR, also took the top prize in health and wellness. Their campaign was for the Killer Pack. It's a simple mosquito coil that is the real innovation. These are the garbage collection points in India. And for mosquitoes, this is a fertile ground. So this is a piece of 100% biodegradable packaging with a coil inside. So you literally pick up this killer pack, you throw it in the middle of the garbage. Over time, it sort of boils away and releases this chemical, which is um, completely harmless to humans and other animals, but will kill mosquitoes. Um, and it's stopping the spread of malaria. Now, malaria is something that we just don't really think or talk about in the West. Malaria kills nearly 700,000 people a year. It's infecting 200 million people plus a year. Something cheap and easy that you can just literally throw away outside um, and that can stop the spread of malaria is an amazing piece of technology. I saw the winning campaigns and you can watch them too by following the links in Ben's article, which is listed in our show notes. What they've awarded here, I think, is the ease of use and the product itself, as well as the work the agency's done behind it. This shows it's, it really knows now what's important to the agencies and, and, and to patients as well. We've taken our health probably for granted for a long time. And, you know, a global epidemic that can suddenly reach you and your family makes you think much more about what it means to be a patient and what it means to be within healthcare. That's it for The Top Line. I'm senior producer, Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. Don't forget to follow The Top Line on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you listen. And that's the bottom line from The Top Line. <laughs>